John really examining, John almost takes his, almost half of his book for one week of Jesus's life, the Passion Week. And so we've taken the last four weeks just to look at Christ last week with his disciples. Now this morning, we're going to look at what Paul talks about on the other side of the resurrection as he's spelling out for the church the importance of it. Now we've, we've read this once. So I'm just going to reread three verses, 20, 21, and 22, 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Let's pray once more, please. God, I thank you for your word. And thank you that it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that it penetrates our hearts and minds. It gives us a deeper knowing, an intimate relational knowing of our Savior, God. It it grows us in our faith. Lord, I pray that... When we leave here today, we want to worship, continue to worship the Lord, stir our hearts for what you have done for us and be honored. In Jesus' name, amen. Growing up in the South, you've probably heard this statement a lot. Now, that's Bible. Or that's in the Bible. There is often a tendency, what I found, is to confuse scripture with good proverbs and often i've heard people quote ben franklin and say now that's in the bible things like god helps those who help ben franklin a penny saved is a penny earned early to bed early to ride makes a man healthy yeah not the book of ligamentations but ben franklin Franklin was born in Boston in a Christian Puritan home. He was not a believer. He was a deist, which means he believed in the existence of God, but not so much in Christ. And when he was cornered and asked, what do you think of Christianity? This is Ben Franklin's answer. I think the system of morals, the best in the world, but in terms of his divinity, I have my doubts. In other words, he did not believe that Jesus was God. He did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But he also was not consistent. And on his epitaph, which is what they write on a tombstone when you die, I want to read you Ben Franklin's hope. Please listen. The body of B. Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out, And the script of its lettering and gilding lies here, food for the worms. But the work shall not be wholly lost, for it will, as he believes, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author. He believed in a resurrection. He hoped for a resurrection. But the problem is he had no grounds for that hope. Because his hope for resurrection was not connected at all in any way by faith to Jesus being raised. Now, I think that there's many like Ben Franklin 
who have great plans. They believe that they're going to appear again. They're going to be fully resurrected to be with the Lord in heaven in a perfect edition. Yet this is impossible. There's no grounds for that hope unless we're joined by faith to Christ's resurrection. You see, because we are in Christ, we become partakers of everything that he did. It's our faith that makes us one and have union with him. His perfect life becomes our perfect life before the Father. That's the only way we can be accepted. His death for sin becomes my death for sin. And his resurrection from the dead will be my resurrection and your resurrection from the dead. You see, saving faith has a substance. And it's not just that Jesus died for me, but Jesus finished as well and rose. And that we rose in him and will rise to be with him for all eternity. So here's our main idea today is just this, that true Christian faith is resurrection faith. It's not just cross faith. It's resurrection faith. True Christian faith is resurrection faith. Now, Paul here tells us the consequences of what would happen if Jesus was not raised. And there's three things that we want to see. Point one, if there is no resurrection, then Christ is not risen. Verses 12 and 13. Look in your Bibles, please. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some amongst you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. You see, so the question in the early church is, or was, was there such a thing as the resurrection? This is the problem in the Corinthian church. Some in the church were saying, look, a, a resurrection is impossible. It didn't happen. Verse 35 in your Bibles. Notice what they say. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? We call this belief dualism. It means that the body is bad, which is what was believed, but the spirit is good. So how could God raise something that was bad, meaning your body, from the dead? So therefore, the body's not really raised. Now, when your faith is attacked, more than likely the attack will be Jesus was not really raised. It didn't really happen. Don't you know his body was stolen? Don't you know that he just swooned and was unconscious for a little while and he went on to live in the Bahamas and now he runs a colony down there and has long hair? Don't you know that? Well, the witness of Scripture is very simple. He was raised, and if we're a follower joined to him by faith, we shall be raised. He was crucified on Friday. Early Sunday, the four women came to the tomb. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, Joanna, the ones who had anointed him. The tomb was open, and there the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He is risen, just as he said. They told Peter and John, who had a foot race. They'd probably been at John's house where Mary had been taken. They ran to the tomb. John enters first. Now, there's three very interesting words here in the Greek. John doesn't enter the tomb. He says, 
blepo, which means, it's a Greek word, it means I see, to see. He just, he's seeing what's happening there. Peter then comes around him and enters the tomb. And the word that's used there is theoreo, which means examine, to theorize. He examines, he sees what's happening. He examines the linens. John then swoops into the tomb. And the word that's used is harao, to see with understanding. They get it. Suddenly, everything that Jesus has said comes crashing down upon them. John 2.19, Christ said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. And suddenly, it's all there. Jesus then appears to Mary Magdalene, to the women, Peter alone, the disciples at Emmaus, all the disciples, and 500. So we are faced with this. Do we believe the disciples? Do we believe the 500? So that Jesus did raise him from the dead. And is there a resurrection from the dead? Someone might say, I believe that Christ rose, but that does not mean that 2,000 years later, the Christian will rise from the dead. Years ago, George Bush, the vice president of the United States, was invited to a funeral of a Russian leader, Leonid Brezhnev. And Bush was astounded when he got there, who was, Brezhnev was the leader of communist Russia at the time. And of course, they were atheists. They certainly didn't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And Brezhnev's widow stood the entire time in silent protest. And in one of the greatest acts of civil disobedience, just as they're about to close Brezhnev's coffin, she reaches down and she makes the sign of the cross over her dead husband's body. You see, the wife of this man, seeing the dead body, knew that the only hope for him eternally was the resurrection of Jesus. You see, my friends, the truth is he was risen 2,000 years ago, and all Christians will also rise. Why? Not because we are more righteous and therefore our righteousness rises us, not because our moral character is superior, not because we've been able to perfectly love people or how spiritual you are. It is because Jesus is one with his people. Those who have his spirit by faith are joined to him by faith and no one or nothing can separate us from his resurrection to eternal life. Whatever happened to him will happen to you if you're joined to him. He is our head and we are his body and we cannot be separated from him. Where he is, we will be also. Now, not only if there is no resurrection, then Christ is not risen, but if there is no resurrection, then we are false witnesses, point two. If there are no resurrections, then we as Christians are false witnesses to God. Verse 15, 
Look in your Bibles, please, with me. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. My friends, think about this. If Jesus did not rise, do you know what that makes us? Blasphemers, heretics, idolaters. Because we represent God in a way that's not true. Verse 17, our faith is a delusion. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. See, if there's no resurrection, then we believe something that is not true about God. The heart of faith is he died for me, he rose for me, and if not true, then we must give up our Christianity and go in another direction because it's not true. Our faith is empty. We've just trusted a dead man like every other faith. But not only is our faith delusional, we are still in our sins. Verse 17, look in your Bibles with me. Christ is not risen, you are still in your sins. Listen, how do you know that your sins have been forgiven, have been paid for? Well, you have a receipt. If you go to Winn-Dixie and there's 60% off sale that they're having right now, and you buy half the store and you leave, and they give you a long receipt, and it shows you that you've paid in full for what you have purchased. Jesus' death, he died attempting, please listen, attempting to pay for the sins of his people. And if the payment was not enough, he would still be there paying today. His resurrection is our receipt that God accepted his payment, that it is paid in full, like a prisoner coming out of prison after they've paid their time for their penalty. They're free. They've finished. They've accomplished it. And that's what the resurrection says. It's not just his death. It's his resurrection that shows God's accepted it completely. Verse 56, therefore, there's no longer a sting in sin. You see, to die not having our sins forgiven, pardoned, is to experience a sting, the Scripture says. It means something painful. What? What's the sting? Verse 18, look there with me in your Bibles. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Did you see that word perished? It literally means destroyed eternally. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ, if he's not raised, have been destroyed eternally. They faced a sting for their own sins because Christ was not raised. And if you flip that around, what he's saying is because Christ was raised, he took the sting, the eternal punishment for your sins on the cross. He dissolved it. He finished paying for it. And there is therefore now no sting for you for your sin. Because Christ took it. And that should make us want to shout, hallelujah. Because I know I sin all the time in my thoughts, in my words, in my deeds. Several years ago, I saw a video of a countryside man in Asia. And this was after, again, the fall of communism. 
and someone was bringing the gospel to them and they were actually videotaping and the missionary comes up to him and he says hey have you ever heard of jesus and the good news of christ and the man in his native tongue says no i've never heard that would you please tell it to me and he went on to tell him the gospel but to suppose it was a resurrectionless gospel and he said something like this look there was this man named jesus who said he was the son of god he was born of a virgin he lived a perfect life he taught amazing things and then he went to the cross and he died and they put him in a tomb and there he is today you can go see him he's there in the tomb let's go worship hallelujah and the man would say why should i believe that how do i know he was really god's son how do i know that his death was for me seems like just another man that would die his rising is your certainty that he paid it all he accomplished his mission he stuck, took the sting of god his judgment his wrath for my sins the lord jesus took upon himself the sum total of all the guilt of his people he then took the sum total of God's sting of wrath for those sins, the sting of whips, the sting of carrying the cross, the sting of death, the sting of thirst, the sting of punishment, and most painfully, the sting of being separated from his Father. And he fully discharged all of our debt, so like he said on the cross, it is finished. So we no longer have to be afraid, do we, of the sting of God and his wrath. And I say this often, so often when I think about coming to the Lord in prayer and worship, and I know something I've said or something I've done, I feel like I can't come to the Lord. There's a sting. I need to go do something and be punished somehow. And that's the opposite of the gospel. The gospel said, come boldly because Jesus took that sting. He took the punishment for everything I've done and will do. Point three. If there is no resurrection, then our source of hope is gone. If there is no resurrection, then as Christians, we're hopeless. We're hopeless. Several years ago, Jennifer and I were visiting an orphanage in India. And we were doing a bit of teaching there. And... I walked around the orphanage, and it was just an amazing place. But there was a tiny little bamboo house. And it kind of stuck out like a sore thumb. And so I asked the director of the orphanage, I said, who lives there? And he said, Schwan does. I said, who's Schwan? He's our man of prayer. They said, we found him homeless as a believer, ostracized in the mountains of India. And we brought him back, and he lives there. And he said, you'll have to come meet him. And so later in the week, I got an opportunity to go meet Schwan. I knocked on his tiny little bamboo door, and he opened it. And there he was, a deformed man, stood very short, hunchback, very deformed face, could barely walk. And he was their man of prayer, living in much pain, praying for the orphans there. Now, look at verse 19 in your Bibles with me. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. I have to tell you, when I saw Schwan 
my life, my heart leapt with pity for his circumstances. And notice what Paul says here. We are the most pitiable if Christ is not raised. We're worthy of pity. He's saying if the resurrection is not true, then our circumstances are more worthy of pity and sorrow than anyone else's. Even those with the most discomfort, sickness, pain, or deformities like Schwann. Why? Why? Well, we're the most to be pitied because we've experienced the highest hopes and had that taken away from us. What do you mean, Rusty? In the death and resurrection of Christ, we have incredible hope, don't we? That makes us leap for joy. Hope that God actually loves us so much that he gave his only son to die and to be punished in my place, a real substitute. And that wasn't the end of the story. He rose again to prove it's finished. And now, not by anything I do, but by grace through faith, I'm accepted and loved and adopted. We have a Savior then waiting for us who made a clean sweep of all our sins, sitting before the judgment seat, all of our acceptance. And if Christ is not raised, then none of that is true. And we return to a miserable, hopeless condition of slavery to bondage and sin, and we're like the rest of the world trying to do lots of good stuff to make myself clean. Let me illustrate that. In 1966, there was a man named Dr. Sachs, and you might have seen the movie. He began to work at Beth Abraham Hospital in the Bronx with a chronic care group at the hospital. He encountered an extraordinary group of patients when we were there, when he was there. He spent his time thinking how to help them. You see, they'd spent many decades in a strange, frozen condition, many of them like human statues. They were survivors of the encephalitis epidemic that struck America in the 1920s. And so he had an idea that he was going to give them an experimental drug called L-DOPA. And he did. And when he gave it to them, they woke up. Some of them, after 40 years of being in a comatose state, they woke up and they were alive, as alive as we are, and, and had their senses. They could touch, they could taste, they could talk, they could love. And they thought, we've been resurrected, we're alive, this is incredible. They were reconnected to their loved ones and their families. But it was short-lived. You see, it turned out L-DOPA was a temporary fix. And it wasn't long after before they began to regress back to their comatose state. You see, they had a hope of a resurrection. And that hope was taken away from them. And we might look at them and say, they are the most to be pitied because what a hope they had. And it was removed from them. Snatched away. My friends, if there is no resurrection, then we are the most to be pitied because we have experienced a real hope, 
of being forgiven, adopted by faith in Christ alone. And in actuality, none of that's true. We are still in our sins, struggling in the world like everyone else. And therefore, he said, the most to be pitied. Now, the truth of the gospel is just the opposite. Christ died. He rose from the grave. And your faith is not in vain. You are no longer in your sins, but you are forgiven and you are saved if your faith is in the death and the resurrection of Christ. Let me say these last words. Christ rose victorious over death and the judgment of sin. He put it away. He took the sting of death. He took the fear of death away from us. He took the fear of hell and judgment away from us. The resurrection now is our certainty that God accepted Jesus' offering as the Lamb, that all of God's claims of justice upon my life have been completely satisfied in the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. And so here we stand, saved completely by grace through faith alone, with a living hope, not a dead hope, a living hope at the right hand, the hand of acceptance of the Father above. Amen? Heavenly Father, we just praise you now for the resurrection. If there's no resurrection, we're the most to be pitied because we've banked our entire life, Lord, on the fact that Jesus is who he says he was. And if he wasn't raised, then he's a liar, and that's not true. So I thank you for what an amazing testimony of the scriptures that we have of all of his promises of the resurrection, of his appearances to many people, even a group of over 500, that we know that Christ was risen from the dead, Lord. And thank you that by faith we have union, we are joined to Jesus, Lord. And as he rose the first fruits from the dead, so we will rise and be accepted by the Father, not because I've lived a perfect life, but because Christ's righteousness has become ours. Praise you, Lord, for your good news, your grace, and your mercy to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Could I ask the elders to come forward now? I'm going to read to you 1 Corinthians 11 as we're about to take the Lord's Supper. But just consider this. In the Lord's Supper, just like in baptism, God considered how he designed us, didn't he? Right? He ordained that not only should we be told and hear the gospel and all the good news of Christ's redemption as our lamb, but also that it should be exhibited before us it should be represented before us. In other words, you might say that God knows that we are visual people. And the preaching of the word brings amazing grace, but God also gives us real grace in these simple things. It's real and true spiritual nourishment. Does that mean if I take the bread and put it in my pocket that I have Jesus in my pocket? 
No. It means that the Holy Spirit, in the same way that he uses his word, uses bread and grape juice to make the gospel, to make Christ come alive in your heart and your mind. I want to just read to you then what 1 Corinthians 11 says about it. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord, this is Paul, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he come. Who is this for? If you're a believer, you've put your faith in Jesus Christ alone to save you. You've asked him to forgive you. His Holy Spirit's come into your life. And if that faith has been expressed in baptism, whether as a child or an infant or an adult, regardless of what church that you're part of, this is God's grace to you. This is the gospel in physical form to you. Who's it not for? Without any shame whatsoever, if you've not done those things, if you've never put your faith in Jesus as your Savior, I would say, please, the scriptures say you eat and drink judgment upon yourself. And so please, I would ask without any shame, let these things pass you by. But I would also hold up the gospel to you and say, consider Jesus, God's lamb, died for you, placing your faith and becoming his disciples. Now I'm just going to pray. This is very similar to what Jesus would have had. Matzah bread, which is like we learned this week, which was striped and pierced very much like our Savior, who was striped for our sins and pierced for our transgressions, and the cup. And I'm going to just pray the Lord would give us grace through these things. Please pray with me. Father, thank you so much for simple bread, simple grape juice. Lord, and you give us enabling, persevering grace through your Holy Spirit through these things. Feed us, encourage us, spiritually nourish us now. In Jesus' name, amen. And he took bread like I'm doing as a minister in his name, bread that would have looked a lot like this, unleavened bread for the Passover, and he broke it. And as he handed it out to the disciples, he said something they'd never heard before. This is the night before the cross. He said, this is my body. In other words, I am the bread of life. I am the lamb of God that's broken for you as a substitute for you.
My friends, it's the body of Jesus which was striped and pierced for our sins and our transgressions. Take and eat. That same night in the Passover feast, there would have been four cups. And Jesus took what we think is the cup of redemption. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is of my blood. Which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus died at Passover. 270,000 lambs entering the city. Jesus enters the city through the sheep gate. He's examined by the high priest. He goes, and like any of the other sheep, he dies. When the high priest says, Passover is finished, it is finished. So Christ says on the cross to Telestai, it is finished. In other words, his blood, his life was a substitute for you. And by drinking this, you're professing that's your faith. Take and drink. Let's pray one last time. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that my blood doesn't save me. My life doesn't save me. My efforts don't save me. Being a good person doesn't reconcile me. Lord, thank you that there will be a resurrection from the dead. Lord, and thank you so much that we are joined to Christ. And it is only by our faith in Christ that we will be seen as forgiven, washed, accepted. Lord, and we know that because he was raised. Hallelujah, he was raised. Amen.